Welcome to Tyranny Today. The events in the Middle East are evolving so quickly that it's sometimes difficult to separate signal from noise, grain from chaff, malinformation from misinformation, and both of them from intentional disinformation. Behind that racket, there is an insidious battle of collective traumas. For those lucky few among my listeners whose uh, recent ancestors were not butchered in some perverse way, the very concept of collective trauma is nigh on incomprehensible. This concept cannot be simply grasped with our cognitive capacity. It plays out at a different level of ancestral memory, a level that affects us viscerally at the nexus of our emotional and our physical aspect of being. So it is not that I understand, at the cognitive level, what the inhabitants of southern Kibbutzim went through on that fateful morning of Hamas's outrage. Understanding is not the right term here. But I do feel, deeply, in the bowels of my own inherited collective trauma, what it means to be picked from your home and slaughtered. And I feel that detuned string that is reverberating in every Jewish heart, plucked with so much violence and the collective memory of the past pogroms in Odessa, in Kishinev, or in Kiev, of Einsatzgruppen and their mass murder at Babiyar, at Riga Ghetto, and what Germans planned one day for Jews in Palestine. It didn't come to pass then, but it did now. I share that deep, ill-defined yet real sense of inherited suffering, as if those violent deaths could pass on in our genes from one generation to another. My ancestors, too, were butchered by Gestapo, by Ansatzgruppen, and by the Soviet NKVD. Very close ancestors, in fact, who had the misfortune to live at the wrong time and at the wrong place, as Timothy Snyder defined the Eastern European bloodlands. That ancestral memory may be one reason why I run this podcast in the first place. Where I differ from some disappointingly linear commentariat of the non-traumatized West is in the appreciation of the alleged tribal rift that separates one collective suffering from the other. As the bombs have been falling on the heads of many innocent civilians, we forget that they too suffer from their collective trauma of Nakba, the Palestinian catastrophe of 1948 and the subsequent ethnic cleansing of much of Palestine of its Arab inhabitants. Just like our collective identities depend on the negative identification of the other, a menacing other, a disdained other, or other as the alter ego of my own self-identified collectivity. So does my collective trauma naturally matters to me more than some other collectivity's trauma, because I have not inherited their suffering, only mine and ours. After all, it was someone else's tribe that attacked mine, and it's the horror of that violated security that I re-experience in the trauma, not the insecurity of someone else. We are certainly capable of individual empathy, but how difficult it is to seek inside ourselves the resources for empathy of collected trauma. It may not be entirely impossible, but it certainly is 
harrowingly vexing to achieve it at a time when our own ancestral trauma has been triggered and the toxic cocktail of shock, revulsion, anger, hatred, and thirst for revenge surface. There's something in the heritage of my clan, invaded by an alien clan, when our men are slaughtered, our women are raped and taken away, our children are kidnapped and raised to serve a different lord. Something quite deep. That ancestral fear literally castrates our ability to empathize with dead invading clans inherited or actual plight. And so, when rationalistic observers in the West point to this cycle of hatred, revenge, retribution, crimes, whether committed by a terrorist group or by an army of a recognized state, they fail to properly comprehend the deepest of emotions that unhealed collective traumas carry, fear for one's own survival. In just several days, Israel mobilized a Napoleonic-sized army, 700,000 troops out of 9.3 million population, so 7.5% of the entire population. Taiwan, a country of 24 million, is capable of mobilizing 9.5% of its population, but certainly the Israeli reserves are better trained. And yet, the question of how this country could be so easily humiliated by a bunch of well-trained thugs will loom over Israel and over Jews in general over many years. We might get some technical answers in the future, but it's clear that right-wing populism that seeks to perpetuate its rule by deepening divisions inside the country weakens the state. It's not just about the Minister of National Security who, instead of focusing on the citizens' security, was trying to figure out how to barge into Al-Aqsa Mosque in some provocative fashion. That was his focus. Is the entire lurch towards populist right that focuses its energy on attacking the elites, the institutions, the courts, the independent media, the civil society, and anyone who disagreed with them. Remember the orange man's harangues against America's deep state? Well, there is a reason for the deep state to be there in the first place. It is to do what it can to keep the country safe, and since 9-11, this task became more urgent, more fraught and more multifold, especially now that China is tripling its nuclear arsenal in like three years. Or listen to how AfD, Alternative für Deutschland, speaks about Germany's state. That's music to Putin's ears. Listen to Orban's tirades, offering his EU member state as the Chinese Trojan horse in Europe. The same with Netanyahu and his gang of extremists who failed to protect 1,300 Israelis. Weakening of the state to combat internal rivals opens up our vulnerability to external enemies. External enemies are not some conspiracy theory. Only the atheistic left believes that there is no evil in the world. And only if we swallow the pure Kool-Aid of the French revolutionaries, rationalistic utopias, the world will forever bathe in eternal peace. Alas, not in this life. Evil is out there. And if we forget about it for some time, then Hamas or Putin will be there to remind us of its omnipresence. Instead of combating the external otherness of evil, right-wing populists invite otherness into the inner core of the polity that they are supposed to protect. There are shenanigan falls on fertile ground, plowed and inseminated by the left's invention of internal otherness, the most recent sexual identity, the last remaining and unheralded skin pigment, 
some social class so puny that even the one and only Karl Marx may have overlooked it. And instead of laughing off the woke jesters, the populists turned them into martyrs, conveniently forgetting that it was Joseph Stalin who introduced the notion of the enemy of the people, a term of infinite elasticity. Extermination of such enemies took place merely because they belonged to a group of enemies, not for any deed or act they committed. But while Stalin was chasing enemies of the people in the ranks of his own party, thus weakening his state, his loyal ally, Adolf Hitler, was preparing to attack it from the outside. But populists never apologize because, of course, they never make any mistakes in the first place. They are good at one thing, identifying pain somewhere in the society, magnifying it, amplifying it, rephrasing it, reframing maybe, but never offering any solutions. It's very Marxian. Let's just burn down the house. Let's pull off a revolution. And then what? Temporary dictatorship of proletariat, maybe? What did that lead to in the 20th century? Well, I have an answer to you. It led to 100 million dead. We lose to external enemies because our populists divide us, whipping up selective tribal identities. But leaders' role should be exactly the opposite, uniting us internally in our rich diversity and making us more alert and discerning externally, armed properly to notice the threats when they arise. Not nine years after Hamas was spotted training on paragliders in Malaysia, not nine years after Putin annexed Crimea, and not ten years after Xi Jinping vote to combat the West in his infamous document number nine. Asleep at the wheel for so long that when we are jolted back to reality, we can't drive, because the wheel had already turned into a pillow. So, where are these enemies? Iran is not yet really involved, but could be. The hesitation is historical. Tehran has a bone with Hamas, giving that the Sunni Hamas has a track record of fighting Iran's Shiite and Alawite proxies in Syria since 2015. But direct linkage is one thing, political exploitation of the Palestinians' plight is quite another. For now, Hezbollah, Iranians' right arm in Lebanon, is limiting itself to exchanging courtesy salvos with the Israeli army. It is in Tehran's interest to hold their Hezbollah horses, in case Tel Aviv decides to extend the war to Iran. Israel's overreaction in Gaza is of course in Iran's interest, because it will invalidate any rapprochement between Riyadh and Tel Aviv, and might even eject UAE from the Abraham Accords. At least, this is what Anthony Blinken must have heard on his Middle Eastern tour, because the US has clearly changed the signal for Gaza bombing from green to amber. Israel's attack on Iran is a different kettle of sea snakes which proliferate in the Persian Gulf, as I once belatedly discovered swimming in a place where uh, that was rather ill-advised. So far, the most overt action involved Israel bombing the airfields of uh, Syria's main airport. Well, this is understandable as a move to prevent Iran from delivering supplies to southern Syria and then over to Lebanon. It really irked one of the two external players that I want to talk about today, and that's Russia. The relation between Netanyahu and Putin has been cordial. Israel disappointed its Western backers by not sanctioning Russia in the wake of Moscow's aggression against Ukraine. 
nor did it help in any meaningful way in an effort to defend Ukraine, despite a significant historical connection between the two countries. Not only is Ukraine the fifth largest Jewish populated state in Europe, it's also a place where you can go and visit historical traces of Sholem Aleyham, of Golda Meir, and of Bruno Schulz, which I actually did in Drohobich, where this pre-war literary genius lived and was shot by a Nazi as a revenge for another Nazi's murder. And yet, being neutral in the Ukrainian conflict means supporting the aggression. It is infuriating that the Israeli elite doesn't grasp that universal fact. Tribalist blinkers, obliterating the universalist claims to one's own tragic history, maybe? Now that, that the entire infosphere has redirected its cameras from the Azov Sea to the Eastern Mediterranean, we can ask why that happened and why this new conflict is in Russia's interest. Israel's immediate security needs were served by connivance vis-à-vis Moscow as Russia agreed to blink whenever Tel Aviv bombed targets in Syria. But bombing Damascus airport the other day was a different matter entirely, and the harsh reaction from the Kremlin is now a sign of potentially deteriorating relations. So why is this old new conflict in Russia's interest? Because of Netanyahu's predictability. The ethnic cleansing of Gaza offers an opening for Palestinians to leave their wretched life behind and head for, well, exactly, for Sinai? Not really. The Lebanese have an experience with Palestinian refugees, and they know that some 5% of the Palestinian population are potential troublemakers. Think Black September in 1970 in Jordan, or the repeated troubles in Lebanon in the 1970s and 1980s. More importantly, Hamas credits itself with its ideological roots in Muslim Brotherhood, so the Egyptian strongman al-Sisi, for whom the Muslim Brotherhood constitutes his main political rival, is unlikely to condone the presence of Hamas on its territory. What does it mean? It possibly means that a massive displacement of the Palestinian population into Egypt could be resolved by quick passage to Benghazi in Libya, and from there on to maybe a short zodiac ride to Lampedusa. And for those who would prefer, there is always a flight to Minsk, where Mr. Lukashenko will quickly march them all the way to the Polish border. Oh, there's a fence there, right? Huh, come on, fence? Didn't we just prove in Israel that fences, even those allegedly high-tech ones, are no barriers to us? And so Putin is giggling. Not only has the world's attention turned away from his massacring of civilians in Ukraine, not only is the oil price rising again, not only have the knuckleheads of the GOP nominated the Trumpian clown Jim Jordan as a candidate for Speaker in the House, so much so that Biden has to bundle the military help for Israel with the military help for Ukraine. But also, Western Europe is facing a potential influx of refugees. How politically destabilizing that would be for the continent could be easily predicted from the resulting gains in, by the AfD Alternative für Deutschland in Germany, the corrupt Rassemblement National in France, the equally venal Freiheitspartei in hopelessly bribable Austria, or by Herd Wilders' Partei for Freiheit, in the country whose language gave us apartheid. So that's Russia. And what about China? When Irid Ben Abba, Israel's ambassador to China, expresses her frustration with China's silence on Hamas's attack, she misses an important point. For all the efforts by Israel to leak sensitive military technology to Beijing during the last decade, thus undermining the security of the United States, 
of Japan, of Taiwan, expectations in Tel Aviv that China would somehow back Israel in times of crisis are either innocuously myopic or utterly delusional. Instead, China happily took Israel dual-use drone technology, shared it with Iran, which now sells drones to Russia, and then could in future turn them against the Jewish state unless Hamas hasn't done that already. And frustrated at China's lack of empathy is the right term, because Ambassador Ben Abba cannot be really disappointed. Disappointment contains a shade of surprise, but we should not be surprised. Despite the cupidity of Israeli high-tech exporters to China, Beijing views Israel as an American pawn in the region. That's the view that Beijing shares with many Muslim nations, including in Asia. China cares a lot about how its diplomacy is perceived in the two key Muslim states of Southeast Asia, Malaysia and Indonesia, as it woos the Asian grouping to remain on defense in the geostrategic rivalry that splits the Asia-Pacific nations. Malaysia in particular is notable here, giving the revelations in Jerusalem Post as far back as 2014 that Al-Qassam brigades were training there in Malaysia on paragliders. Yes, Gaza may be an open-air prison, but with nice outings for the inmates. And Indonesia's Joko Widodo will be a guest of honor in Beijing to feed a decade of Belt and Road capital splurge alongside Vladimir Putin and Viktor Orban. So Beijing conveniently forgot to express solidarity and compassion with the victims of Hamas's attack. It's more importantly utilitarian to phone on Muslim reflexes here. For China, Israel is thus but an American outpost in the Middle East, similar to the role that Britain plays in Europe or Japan and East Asia. Beijing hopes to use the Achilles heel in each of those American allies as an opportunity to appear at the end of the game as an impartial broker, whether in Ukraine, in Mashrek, or on the Korean Peninsula. I'll have an opportunity to speak about it more in depth, but suffice to say that Beijing sees these local conflicts as opportunities to weaken America ahead of the final game over Taiwan. Of course, China can't pull off this trick by itself. It needs allies, whether Russia and Europe, North Korea and Northeast Asia, and Iran in the Middle East. Two of these conflicts are already aflame, one in Europe, another one now in the Middle East. So here are the reasons behind China's optimism regarding America's weakened position. In recent years, America's capitulation to Israel's right-wing shift meant that Washington had only one card to play, push for further normalization of diplomatic relations between Arab countries and Israel. In other words, a follow-up on the Abraham Accords, which apparently stopped Israel's complete annexation of the West Bank. Bahrain, UAE, and later Morocco and Sudan signed up to the deal. The biggest remaining prize was, of course, Riyadh. This process gained more urgency since last spring when inexplicably Riyadh and Tehran invited Minister Wang Yi from Beijing to sanction their agreement with more gravitas. Riyadh and Tehran had been conducting talks in Oman and five rounds of talks in Iraq in the previous two years. They could have chosen any country to get to the finish line, but instead chose China. Why is that? How did that happen? In February, so barely two months after squashing anti-regime upheaval in Iran, and two months after the COVID pivot in Beijing, Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi traveled to Beijing. This was the first formal visit by an Iranian leader to China in 20 years. 
Saudi Arabia used this moment to send a signal to Washington that it was ready to pivot to a new prospective protector. America needed to act. It was already upset by the Saudi-Russian shenanigans at OPEC+, Plus, which largely contributed to the emasculation of American fracking business since 2021. The trilateral agreement between Riyadh, Washington, and Tel Aviv took shape just as the political situation in Israel continued to deteriorate. Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, unlike Qatar's Emir al-Tani, really couldn't care less about the Palestinian issue. MBS is said to have been positive about the deal all along on the condition that the U.S. strengthened its security guarantees and gave the green light to development of um, nuclear energy in the kingdom. Here, Washington had to tread carefully. After all, the Saudis could easily find an alternative in the form of Russia's hyperactive Rosatom. Vague promises of economic aid for Palestinians were added somehow to the draft. But then something happened. The Saudis suddenly demanded return of two, six million Palestinian refugees into Israel and the establishment of the capital in eastern Jerusalem. Who shifted the position? Was it the old king? someone listening to the Saudi population, 78% of which were against the Abraham Accords. With its right-wing religious tilt, Tel Aviv was not ready to entertain such huffs. Suddenly Netanyahu's resistance found common ground with other enemies of Israeli-Saudi normalization, namely in Tehran and in Damascus. In the wake of Hamas's attack and the subsequent bombing of Gaza, the Saudi-Israeli deal is now the away, leaving only the Iran-Saudi deal, that thus far is untouched by any upheaval. China's imprimatur is still there. When we set aside the sentiments of the Jewish diaspora and the evangelical beliefs, the Middle East is more immediately vital to Beijing than to America. 80% of China's oil reaches it via maritime routes, and only 19% comes from Russia, uh, with most of the rest from Africa and the Middle East, thus crossing the Malacca Strait. Also, some 170 billion cubic feet of natural gas are imported, of which 110 are in the form of liquid natural gas, compared to 65 sourced overland from Turkmenistan and Russia. Iran's oil exports to China also have boomed, with 1.5 million barrels per day last August, 40% more than just three months before. And that oil goes mostly to smaller refineries in southern China, rather than large state-owned enterprises. The U.S. blinked here, if anything, to increase competition for Russia's oil. In order to shake global confidence in the role of the United States, which is not that difficult in the Middle East, China needs to reach regional dominance in small steps. The classics of Chinese strategy warned that it is the lowest form of warfare to attack the enemy's city and the highest form of warfare to attack the enemy's strategy. That's precisely what CCP did during the civil strife against Guomindang in China. Guomindang forgot that old dictum by trying to defend the cities, while Mao Zedong's troops occupied the countryside around the cities and cut them off, giving rise to rural communism ideology that wrought havoc in Cambodia some three decades later. In line with this perspective, China now views the US-led West as the city and the Global South as the countryside. In these Marxist terms, Israel is but a case of Western neo-colonialist overlordship over the downtrodden locals. More recently, statements by Beijing tilt in this direction. The city-country metaphor is a familiar trick, 
used and abused by authoritarian regimes and our homegrown right-wing populists over and over and over again. Just think about it. The Iranian dictatorship will rely on the province to enforce the hijab rules in the cities. Erdogan will appeal to the conservative Anatolian base against the cosmopolitan Istanbul. Trump will champion the hinterland over the allegedly un-American coastlines. Polish peace tried to rely on the provincial rearguard in its struggle against pro-European cities. So did Marine Le Pen, relying on the rural vote. So did Nigel Farage. So does Alice Weidel at AfD, Alternative für Deutschland. And that's precisely what China does. Encircle the cities. Maybe less so in Europe, where it can instrumentalize Russia's perennial sense of insecurity, but certainly in regions where there is no natural hegemon. And the Middle East is one of those regions. Uh, What? How come no hegemon? What, What about the US? Well, look at the map. The US is far away. It appeared on the scene in February 1945 when President Roosevelt met in Egypt with the father of the current king of Saudi Arabia. Yes, the current king, King Salman, born in 1935, was the 25th son of King Ibn Saud, and was already 10 years old when Roosevelt met with his father and created the system that we know today as petrodollar. It was opportunistic. At that time, the two historical regional powers, that is Turkey and Persia, were still very weak, so the U.S. assumed the mantle of a caretaker power in the region. There was some competition. For example, Stalin tried to overstate his welcome in northern Iran, but was eventually persuaded to withdraw to Armenia. For a while, the petrodollar system served everyone just fine. Before petrodollars, an oil-dependent oil importer ended up with a large debt that was denominated in oil, and oil is more volatile than any major currency. Once the petrodollar system was put in place, the debt was denominated in greenback. So, the only challenge for the importer was to earn sufficient dollars to pay for oil. However, in the 21st century, two developments changed this equation. First, China's growing dominance in the global trade displaced many prospective dollar earners. Even assuming the growing of the global pie, China's export competitiveness reduced the chances of other countries to earn sufficient dollars to power their own growth with energy imports. By the way, this is now slowly changing with the collapse of FDI inflows into China and the fall of Chinese exports, as we saw again in September. The second big change in the equation since the turn of the century has been the U.S. oil and gas fracking, which was financed mostly by high-yield bonds rather than equity due to the capital-intensive nature of fracking and its short duration fast depletion, making high-yields, short-duration securities. The fracking revolution introduced several changes in the petrodollar flows. Higher oil prices increased the number of viable dollar-denominated investments that could be funded by those high-yield bonds, which were attractive for foreign investors with dollar surpluses. In many ways, we can say that this phenomenon extended the U.S. dominance in the global economic system. It could last for as long as the credit spreads were tight enough to make fracking funding economically viable, but not too tight to become uncompetitive to other investment products, especially in times of high interest rates in the treasury market, as is the case now. So keep in mind that core inflation, so inflation outside energy, entrenches higher nominal interest rates, thus reducing the relative attractiveness of high-yield debt. But then a broader question arises. What's the point? of those investments in U.S. capital markets for, say, Saudi Arabia, 
if the U.S. is no longer a big importer. The Gulf countries' alliance of convenience with the U.S. began to break down with the successes of fracking business in North Dakota, Pennsylvania, or Texas. Also, since the 1990s and the terrorist attacks at the beginning of this century, the U.S. turned to its northern neighbor, and today 60% of imported crude oil in the United States originates from Canada. Add to this some personal salt. The Saudis really didn't like Barack Obama and his idealistic attitude to the Arab Spring. They saw how we removed support from under Hosni Mubarak. They were also abhorred at the Iran deal, and after a short detente under Trump, they decided that the benefits of being America's obliging vassals may not outweigh the costs anymore. For starters, it was just hedging and signaling. The two obvious candidates were China and Russia. Alignment of interest with Russia dependent on the situation in the oil markets, which eventually offered an opening in 2020. But until then, Moscow's insistence on Assad's rehabilitation was not very halal in Riyadh or Abu Dhabi, hence the opening for China. Following 40 years of reluctant compliance with the petrodollar system, so between, say, 1979 and 2019, China decided that it would not be able to achieve higher development by just managing trade dollar inflows and petrodollar outflows, and plowing in a surplus into increasingly unprofitable infrastructure projects and wasteful real estate. Hence the shift of priorities, away from long-term economic growth and towards rejuvenation, self-reliance, self-sufficiency, to use some of Xi Jinping's preferred mouthfuls, China's rejuvenation. China's weight as a trading power means, first and foremost, assuming a hegemonic role in the global strategic flows. Alas, the critical element of these flows is still controlled by the incumbent power. For China, the dominance of the petrodollar is one of the main, if not the main, impediment to its hegemony in the global trading system. The US, which runs a perennial current account deficit even now, at 13 million barrels per day of oil produced at home, another record year this year, even now, the US offers its currency as a form of a global common for everyone to use. China's jealous control of renminbi circulation and its discomfort with losing control over the price of capital and the value of its currency make the renminbi an unlikely candidate to replace the greenback. When control is more important than profit, flows are unlikely to flourish. As a result, China's economic system is not very compatible with the interests of the few nations, that is the commodity exporters, who run a trade surplus with Beijing, up to the 10 or $27 billion annually in the case of Saudi Arabia. But this is not a reason to give up. The Middle East featured prominently in the original plans for BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative, concocted by Beijing, and any critical infrastructure within BRI is adapted to military specifications. So while the northern BRI route stretched from China west through Central Asia via Russia to Europe, the southern land route would cross Iran to reach South Caucasus to the Black Sea. Following the reintroduction of anti-Iranian sanctions and the collapse of GCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the southern corridor was made economically rather unattractive, and China countered this with a 25-year, $400 billion investment scheme to Tehran little, if anything, of which has been realized. Actually, some Chinese companies did show up to benefit from generous energy subsidies offered by Tehran. So who came first? Well, have a guess. Of course, Bitcoin miners. 
and we know how energy-intensive these businesses are. Long story short, the unstable energy grid collapsed, followed by rolling blackouts and anti-Chinese demonstrations about outraged Iranian citizens. And the mullahs know that they have to treat very carefully with a China that persecutes its Muslim population as a national policy. But in the region outside Iran, signs of a strategic conflict between China and the U.S. are well exposed. China planned to build Khalifa port near Abu Dhabi, a project that was blocked by the U.S. in 2021 due to security concerns, but was resumed last spring. Saudi's order to purchase 50 F-35s was also delayed because of concerns regarding the growing Chinese footprint there. But that's fine. Sell them to Poland. Or to Taiwan. The Saudis are looking instead at French Rafale. Really, MBS is not interested in Chinese knockoffs of the Russian aircraft? At least not yet. This is a problem for China. The fact that the Persian Gulf countries still depend on American weapons and continuous maintenance of those weapons. As China is stocking up material for the world war, it is not a large exporter of armaments. Instead, China has been trying to court Saudi Arabia with infrastructure projects, for example, rail projects, where the US has really nothing to offer, which you will know if you try to travel by train around this country or even around the fringes of this country. It's so much nicer to be stuck in a traffic jam, isn't it? Last year, hoping to enter through this infrastructure door, Xi Jinping even penned an article at Al-Riyadh referring to 1400 years of contacts between the two civilizations, which obviously excludes the West. And this tickles the Arab pride, giving the painful memories of Umayyad defeat at Poitiers in 732 AD against Charles Martel in France. And these painful memories were more than offset by the devastating victory over Tang China by the Arabs in Talas, today's Kyrgyzstan, some 19 years later. Today, a quarter of Saudi's oil exports go to China, although only 18% of China's oil imports originate from Saudi Arabia. So who needs whom? To become sanctions-proof during the war against the West, China will need the Saudis, just like Russia needs China and India to survive the Western sanctions. But the arrangement will mean something different from a Roosevelt-style petro-yuan. Why is that? The U.S. views oil as a global market. China, on the other hand, views it as a strategic asset. Even as China is becoming a maritime power, it's still uncomfortable treating strategic flows as flows rather than stocks. The U.S. Navy spends about $50 billion a year defending the major shipping routes and everyone benefits. China is unlikely to take over the financing of public goods falling into what we call Kindleberger trap. Charles Kindleberger, one of the architects of the Marshall Plan, argued that the catastrophic decade of 1930s was caused by the United States' disengagement from global affairs. So while the country had already taken over the mantle of the global hegemon from Britain, it failed to assume the role of the global provider of public goods. Will China make this mistake now? Structurally, there is limited space for China to build a zone of influence. Western analysts soothingly point out that rich petrostates don't really need Chinese capital, they prefer Western brands and Western weapons. But that's just greed, purely commercial thinking. When things get dangerous, it's security that matters rather than greed, and the petrostates have been very unhappy about America's diminished commitment to the region. China knows this. From the very beginning, there was a risk to China-Saudi strategy, giving 
Riyadh, Tehran and Amazri and the proxy wars that the two regimes had been waging in Yemen and in Syria. For the privilege of upgrading his relations with Riyadh, Xi Jinping had to pay a high price in December 2022. The joint statement was openly anti-Iranian, anti-Houthi in Yemen, openly opposing Iranian nukes, and only sweetening the message with bows to Israel's illegal occupation of East Jerusalem. Tehran was in such a shock that the main government paper ran a pro-Taiwanese front-page article. The real risk was that if China was pulled too strongly to the Saudi side, a disappointed Iran would turn to Russia, which it did, supporting Moscow's military effort with drones. Russia and Iran have been cooperating in Syria since 2015, as Moscow did not really threaten Iranian economic interests in Damascus. The two agreed to keep the logistical canal open to Hezbollah, except whenever Israel asked Russia for a permission to bomb them, despite the Russian S-14 air defense systems that are installed there. As mentioned before, Moscow, aware of the opportunity to use the leverage, would usually blink and let IDF do its job. It was clear that what Moscow was really interested in was torpedoing any U.S.-Iran deal, which makes Russia's goals quite compatible in the region to China's. While Russia bolsters Iran's position, China, first and foremost, wants to appear as an impartial peace broker. China's diplomacy functions via special envoys, thus borrowing from the American approach. While its initiatives in Syria and Palestine were rather naive and ultimately unsuccessful, the crowning of the Iran-Saudi deal was a real feat. And just several weeks ago, Bashir al-Assad, all but rehabilitated in the eyes of the Arab elites, was now giving a red carpet on his official visit to the PRC. We do not know exactly what the quid pro quo involved, but Russia is known to have tried in the past to attract PLA to Syria. What? More PLA bases in the Middle East? So yes, China is a power broker. The second narrative that Beijing adopted in the region is a bit more surprising. China is positioning itself as a successful anti-terror campaigner. The fact that an entire oppressed Muslim minority is considered terrorist in Xinjiang somehow doesn't raise a flag with Riyadh or Doha when they single out Mr. Netanyahu's treatment of Palestinians. Beijing's message is clear. We know, my dear Gulf regimes, that you have a problem with jihadists. We'll show you how to deal with terrorists and we can help you, dear royal families, to better control your young, potentially restive population. Iran already has the Chinese facial recognition tools and applied them in the wake of anti-regime protests last year. Thirdly, and most importantly, China appears as a proud champion of the global south. Back in the first Cold War, India's posture was very clear and the country opposed the 1947 partition project presented at the UN while Taiwan, which represented China, abstained from the vote. Now, however, India does not really constitute a viable competitor to China, especially in the Gulf, where Indians occupy various levels in the local workforce, including some lower rungs, thus projecting a very different image. New Delhi is also hamstrung by recurrent interfaith tensions on the subcontinent, and Hamas's attack basically scotched any hope for an Indian-Saudi-Israeli rail route that was um, touted on the sidelines of the G20 in New Delhi, a gathering marked by the glaring Chinese and Russian absences. Even worse, the I2U2, minilateral partnership of India, UAE, Israel, and the US, announced in July of last year, is deteriorating on the brink of collapse, should Netanyahu overreact and should 
UAE pull out from the Abraham Accords. Iran would be delighted, and so would be China, showing to New Delhi that reliance on the war-torn USA goes no place. China is thus trying to shape this narrative in the region. Beijing always seeks to identify latent or overt anti-US sentiment, just as Russia is adept at exploiting anti-French sentiments in Africa. Even when there is zero economic interest for China, as in the case of Syria or Palestine, pushing the anti-Americanist button pays really juicy dividends for Beijing. Why is that? Because, in the case of any serious threat to Israel, Washington's knee-jerk reaction is, let's support Netanyahu from where there's only one tiny step towards let's support Netanyahu no matter what he does. Honestly, only isolationist troglodytes in the GOP won't see through the Chinese game. The US is not viewed as an honest broker because it has not done anything in the last quarter of a century to force its allies in Tel Aviv to adopt a more constructive approach towards a Palestinian statehood. And so, the Arab street's reaction against Israel quickly turns into a cacophony of anti-American rant. What more is needed to please Beijing, Moscow, and Tehran? You could quickly spot the Chinese and Soviet flags in the first pro-Palestinian demonstration in New York last week. China's response to Tel Aviv and Washington's admonitions address at Beijing that it does not show sufficient compassion for Israel's suffering, which it indeed didn't, were dismissed last week in Beijing with a statement that it's illogical to demand from the PRC to take sides in a conflict caused by Western neocolonialism, of course, and exacerbated by the US policy. Pointing out Israel's existence as the West neocolonial plot is an old communist trope, but this Cold War language has been wheeled out since Russia's invasion of Ukraine by both Moscow and Beijing all around the global south. So, yet again, China is positioning itself as an honest, impartial broker. It took Beijing over 20 years to clinch that opportunity, as it has been that long that Washington had deserted the role of an arbiter by aligning itself too closely with Likud's politics. Beijing intends to further pursue its entente with Saudi Arabia, and the two wish to turn into kingmakers. They will happily fill the vacuum left by Washington because they know very well how far America's corrupt political class can go to pander to delusional evangelicals. Isn't Netanyahu's rule just simply a sign of the imminent return of Jesus? But, as they say in India, never trust the Chinese. None of this Chinese arbitrage will solve the suffering, the uncertainty, and the sacrifices of the Israeli people and its army. Americans have to understand that in the long term, the interests of Netanyahu and the interests of the Israelis are not coterminous. Just like the interests of Hamas and the interests of Palestinians are not coterminous. The only way for Israel to secure its long-term existence is not by killing innocent civilians used by terrorists as their shields, and thus playing into the hands of Tehran, Beijing, or Moscow, nor by cleansing the land of Muslims and thus intensifying hatred of a billion people around the world. The only solution is to turn Palestinians against Hamas. Now, let me repeat it. The only solution is to turn Palestinians against Hamas. And this would require a bold political move, meaning a genuine offer to Palestinians in the of creeping apartheid. Like what? Like walking back into that large room in the old League of Nations building in Geneva, or Yasser Arafat back in 1988 for the first time implicitly recognized the Israeli states in the presence of our Secretary of State George Schultz. I was in Geneva at that time. 
And sometime later, I actually worked in that room, so I remember vividly Yasser Arafat's words. This is what he said. The PLO will seek a comprehensive settlement among the parties concerned in the Arab-Israeli conflict, including the state of Palestine, Israel, and other neighbors, within the framework of the International Conference for Peace in the Middle East, on the basis of resolutions 242 and 338, and so as to guarantee equality and the balance of interest, especially our people's rights and freedom, national independence, and respect the right to exist in peace and security for all. Quote, unquote. Now, coming from an aging ex-terrorist, or, if you wish, a freedom fighter for others, uh, this was courage. Much has been made of Arafat's subsequent mistakes, especially the rejection of Ehud Barak's land for a peace deal 12 years later. Rather than rejection, it was his incompetent dithering in the veiled hope of clinching a better deal that was not on the table and not even in the kitchen. Goodwill must come from both sides. The real Nakba was not in 1948 because it was partly self-generated by Arab countries rejecting the original UN plan to create a compromised Palestinian state. The real Nakba started with Ariel Sharon exploiting a right-wing tilt in Israeli politics and his success in controlling American politics. I still remember when he would visit my IPAC neighbor here on New York's Upper West Side. But squeezing Palestinians into the last scrap of this crowded land hands over the reins of the future for the most extremist elements which, unlike Arafat in 1988, pledge eine Frage, the final solution of the Jewish question. And that's mirrored with the nihilism of some Israeli politicians, which is shameful because they represent a recognized state, not a group of terrorist thugs. When Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant says that he has ordered that Gaza faces siege, and that there will be no electricity, food, or fuel, quote-unquote, he officially promises to commit war crimes against the collectivity, in which the vast majority has nothing to do with the terrorist attack. I remember the first Cold War vividly. I knew it firsthand, seeing it up close and personal on both sides of the Berlin Wall. And I consider this moment in history right now as much more dangerous than in the times of Arafat, Gorbachev, and Deng Xiaoping. Why? Because personal interests of the top leaders have now diverged far from the interests of the populations that they claim to represent. Pity the people of the book, all squeezed into this thin sliver of the biblical land. Thank you for listening. Let's meet again next week.